Tradition. Well, this Wednesday, the 25th of April, marks Anzac Day, a day filled with tradition. However, just over a decade ago, the question was whether those traditions would help to keep Anzac Day and the Anzac Day March alive or whether it would actually, in fact, suffocate it. The Sydney Morning Herald reported back in April 2006 that World War II diggers are resisting an RSL push to have more descendants of veterans join the Anzac Day March. Many surviving diggers were concerned families could eventually take over the occasion. Rats of Tobruk Association President Joe Medley said it destroyed the meaning of Anzac to have children and non-veterans marching in the column. The New South Wales RSL president warned the Anzac Day march could die out as World War II veterans approached their 90s unless new marches. We have to encourage descendants to march or one day there will be no march at all. Since then, we have seen younger generations march and remember loved ones who served. And despite security concerns, the Anzac Day March continues to be strong. Last year, an anticipated 60,000 gathered at Victoria's Shrine of Remembrance to reflect on the meaning of the Anzac tradition. And this year, a young generation prepares to remember. But history is sprinkled with stories or groups or organisations who have failed to navigate the changing. Some of you may remember video recording form, a video recording format called VHS. Who remembers VHS? Yeah, there's a few of us there. But how many of you remember Betamax? Oh, there's a few as well. Good on you. The Betamax industry standards were better quality than VHS but they failed to navigate the video recording space as well as VHS did, and so they died out. What about the Swatch watch? It was the Swiss analogue watchmaker's attempt to claw back a massive loss in market shares that came as a result of them writing off the digital watch market, thinking it is a passing fad and the Casio watches of their days and all those different things, they will just die. It's not going to last. Have you ever heard of Stephen Sasson? Well, my guess is you've all been affected in some way by him. He worked for Kodak and in 1975, he invented digital camera in 1975. He even conceived of a future where images could be sent over the telephone line. The response from Eastman um, Eastman Kodak was, print has been around for over 100 years and no one is complaining about prints. They were very inexpensive. And so why would anyone want to look at their picture on a television. In 2012, the Eastman Kodak Company filed for bankruptcy. In the mid-90s, I sold mobile phones for a living. 
just as Optus was entering the Australian market. And previously, Motorola, the inventor of the mobile phone, dominated the space. Then along came a company called Nokia. And I watched them radically transform the mobile phone industry and dominate the market with their user-friendly phones. Motorola mobile phones all but died out. But even Nokia became uh, complacent and failed to continue to adapt and change. And they soon followed Motorola. So now we have the two newest and biggest mobile phone manufacturers, Samsung and Apple's iPhone. But I wonder how they will go navigating this space. Today, we call situations like this market disruptors. In a world of rapid change, not just rapid change, but what we call rapid discontinuous change, as like a train is speeding up going down the rails. And just when we think this is the direction that they're going to end up, someone switches the points and they head off in a different direction. Or even they jump the tracks and they don't worry about tracks at all. Rapid discontinuous change. Disruptors like Uber and Uber Eats and all those different... It signals a challenging space that we live in. And we ignore this space at our peril. But surprisingly enough, Jesus was just such a disruptor. And we, and we love it when we jump on the coattails of Jesus as a disruptor until he starts to disrupt. In a religious system that had adopted tradition after tradition, that became so woven together and overlaid with more traditions that they obscured the seeker's ability to come and find God. Traditions of giving a tenth of your kitchen herbs and spices. Traditions around what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. How far you could walk. You could walk this far, but no further. You could do this, but not that. Great Orthodox Jews will find some other way of pressing the lift button on the Sabbath so that they don't actually make something work. They don't conduct work on the Sabbath. That is so how obsessed some people can be about some of these The thing was, I believe that started with really... You see, the Israelites in the Old Testament started to get off track when it came to worship of God. And various prophets again and again called them back to worship of God and the worship of Yahweh God alone. The Sabbath day rest was being abused and ignored and people were being exploited. There was the worship of other gods and and the Israelites started to introduce human sacrifice and all that was starting to be practiced by the Israelites. And they were ignoring the warnings that ultimately meant that they were going to be kicked out of the land that God... But when they returned some 70 years later from exile and slavery to help remind the people of how to do the right thing, scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, religious lawyers, came up 
came onto the scene and and they wanted to make sure that the exile didn't happen again, that they didn't get it wrong again, that they didn't get kicked off their land again. So laws and rules and traditions were introduced that often ended up becoming a barrier for people to connect with God rather than, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 2. If you're electronic, you can switch your Bible on to an item that um, has a camera in it, a digital camera that was invented in 1970. But Bible, electronic or a paper version, turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2 gives an, just such an account where uh, there's this occasion where Jesus is a disruptor to tradition. It was the lead up to the Passover and Jerusalem would swell to capacity with the arrivals of Israelites from further afield and converts also to Judaism. But because of the distance that people had to travel, they couldn't practically bring animals for sacrifice with them on their trip. And so they had to make some other arrangements about what they were going to do. So the tradition emerged that animals for sacrifice were able to be purchased. This trade in Jesus' day was traditionally completed in the... So when we read in John chapter 2, verse 14, remember that this was happening in the Gentile court of the temple. So let's read John chapter 2, verses 13. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, remember where that is, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifice. He also saw dealers at at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle, scattered the money changers' coins all over the floor and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold the doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy for passion for God's house. What got Jesus so angry? Some suggest that it was just the fact that they were selling animals for sacrifice. While there is good support for Jesus being angry about the ripping off of worshippers, it wasn't the trade itself that was of concern. After all, the traders provided a valuable an important service for those travelling from some distance. Yes, the ripping off of people ticked Jesus off. The fact that they had to exchange money and there was this extra fee. You, it was like the exchange rate where you might bring your, your normal money or your money from another country and you had to convert it to a temple currency. And the exchange rate was always, always in the temple's favour. And so you came out with less money in your pocket as a result. Or another thing that they used to do was they would take an animal and say uh, from one of the local people that were um, bringing an animal to, uh, to sacrifice and they'd check it out and think, mm, no, look, it's got a bit of a, uh, a droopy ear. We don't think that one's okay. But hey, guess what? We've got one here. Here's one we prepared earlier. You can buy this one. And so they'd sell that sheep to the person. And then they take that one that was defective, take it around and then sell it 
to another person. And they would abuse. And so there were these things that, yeah, Jesus was annoyed about that. But in this time, in this place, what was really ticking Jesus off? Well, let's use his own words as a clue to guide us. Verse 16, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. It wasn't so much the trade, but the tradition that had developed of where the trade took place. You see, for Jewish women, they could go further. They didn't have to worship God in the Gentile court. They could go into the court of women and they could worship God there. For men, they could go further towards the center of the temple itself and they could go away from the distracting noises, the smell of the poo and the pee from the animals. The priests could go even further in to worship God. But for the Gentiles, they were stuck with this Jewish tradition, a tradition that adversely impacted their worship of God. They had to worship God right in the middle of this market precinct. That was the only space in the tabernacle. God wanted the Israelites and Jerusalem's temple to be a lighthouse, attracting Gentiles from the furthest parts of the world to come and to learn about God and to follow God. But the temple area, that was an important part of this whole tradition, this whole thing of worshipping God. But when they travelled, when these people, these Israelites from further afield, and when the Gentiles would come to worship Yahweh God, they had to not only travel and overcome significant distance geographically, but also culturally. And when they arrived, they were treated with contempt by the Jewish tradition. A true a Jewish tradition that meant you don't matter. You don't fit in around us. Our traditions are more important than your salvation. Turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Several years later, these followers of a disruptive uber Jesus became an uber church. And they were disrupting the traditions of worship as well. And the religious leaders, the established religious leaders of the day, in order to protect their tradition, their control, their power, persecuted and even killed some of Jesus' disciples. But Jesus the disruptor was not finished with challenging some of the tethering, holding back the movement of the message of God to save others with his love. In Acts 10, we read of Peter, who God needed to lead another break with tradition that was hindering the advancement of the gospel. The breakthrough started with a regular commitment to prayer, as we read in Acts 10. Acts 10, verses 9 to 17. Peter went on Uh, Sorry, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon and he was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open and something like a large sheet was was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles and birds. Then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill them and eat them. 
No, Lord, Peter declared. I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. But the voice spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was uh, repeated three times and then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Peter was perplexed. But a few verses later, we discover in verses 28 and 29 how the Holy Spirit changed Peter's tradition through the power of prayer. In Acts 10, 28 and 29, we read this. Peter told them, You know that it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me, why have you sent for me? And as we read that story, we discover as a result that because of Peter's willingness to have his traditions challenged by God, the disruptor, people's lives were transformed. Both the Gentiles who came to faith and the Jews who were there and saw um, the work that God was doing, they saw God and the Gentiles in a different light. So what do we make of these passages today? How should we understand today? Well, I believe there's a couple of things that are worthy. Tradition in and of itself is not wrong. When we repeat things again and again, it can start a tradition. In our reading of Deuteronomy that was um, brought to us earlier this morning, God calls for us to repeat things to help us to remember and to talk about God with others. But we also need to beware, beware if this tr- becomes the focus. When tradition becomes the reason, when tradition becomes the focus, rather than an aid to remembering the real reason, things go off the rails. The Passover was a God-ordained tradition. But Passover was a time to remember God's deliverance. It was to have God be the focus, not the meal. For this reason, when Jesus reinterpreted, retweaked the Passover to what we commonly know as communion, we maintain that communion is not the focus, but it should help us to draw our attention to God. That's why the symbols that we use are less important than what they symbolize in Japan. You might have communion with rice and sake. Bible translation. The Lord is my shepherd. But for those in Papua, in Papua New Guinea, that area, who do not know what a ridiculous the Lord. Now that has meaning. If we feel challenged, then ask questions. Ask questions of yourself when traditions are challenged. Why am I feeling turbed by this? What's going on for when this tradition is being challenged, when there's this disruption going on? And ask questions of others. Hey, listen, I noticed that you did. Can you help me understand why it was done? By doing that, it changes our posture. Rather than being critical, rather than being protective, we're being open. The fact that maybe God wants to do disrupting in our life. The priority for adaptation and change is to be found 
in a prayerful posture to help others to come to know God. For Jesus and for Peter, both were prepared to challenge and to change and to see change take place out of a deep-seated desire to help others come to know God. So for us at Northern, we will tap into various traditions to help us to connect with God. But we also need to regularly ask the question, have our traditions become the focus rather than helping us to focus? And in all that we do, we need to maintain an outward focus to the community around us and prayerfully consider how we can help others come to know God. And then we can make the necessary changes in the right direction. Now, there is one thing that I can guarantee you. We will not always get it. But we will continue as a church, as we have in the past, we will continue to try old and new things out of a desire to share the gospel message of the saving love of God to our community in culturally relevant way. So how do we respond today? How do we respond to this message of disruption? How do we respond to the value of... Well, on the slide, I'd encourage you to consider... Think of the truths that are important and quite simply write a, write a prayer of response and say, God, I want you to be more important. As great as these traditions are, they are not as you. As important as these they are not. Otherwise, we run the risk. So what's God saying to you today? There's going to be some music played, and I encourage you to pull out those response cards and write a prayer of response out of what God's feeling a little discomfort. God can work. God bless you. Let's respond.